Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 17 through 20. As we continue through the book of Matthew, paragraph by paragraph, if you wonder why we do it that way, this passage tells us here about the nature of God's Word. The point of the book of the Gospel of Matthew is to show and demonstrate who Jesus is and what He did. Namely, He came to earth from heaven to introduce the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, uh, which is His rule over people and creation. So the book of Matthew is about kingship and showing that Jesus is that promised king who begins his reign. So it is directly connected with the Old Testament. And if you've been here for the past year, remember we went from Malachi straight to Matthew to see the connection between the two. So one of the most difficult questions in churches is how does the Old Testament relate to Christians? Because the Old Testament's, let's be honest, it's kind of weird. A bunch of laws... Bunch of prophecies, bunch of people, kings getting killed, but especially the laws. You know, the shellfish. You're not supposed to eat shellfish, and you're not supposed to have mixed garments. What does that mean for us? How does the Old Testament relate to us now that we are Christians and we we, we follow Jesus in the New Testament? So this verse talks about that, or these verses talk about that. Jesus Himself anticipates the question. He knew this would be a problem. So Jesus. Gives us This is a long sermon, chapter 5, 6, and 7, or one long sermon. It probably took him a couple days to preach. Introducing the kingdom that he has brought. It's right at the beginning of his ministry. And to introduce the kingdom, as the king of the Jews, he had to address the book of the Jews, which is the Old Testament. And so he does it in three ways in this passage. We're going to see that he fulfills the Old Testament with authority. His disciples pursue the righteousness of the Old Testament. But ultimately, Christ demands perfect righteousness, which he gives. So let's look at this passage and we'll see, first of all, Christ relates himself to the Old Testament. Verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, law and prophets is a way that they refer to the Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament, they would refer to it as law and prophets. So just a, it's, a, it's their way of saying all the books before this. For surely I say to you, or verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, One commentator said, this is the most difficult passage in the whole Bible. I don't know. Usually it means it's one of the most important passages in the Bible. And because it's so important, it, it really pushes back against a lot of other things that we like uh, and causes us to sort of reevaluate how we view the world, how we view Christ, how we view the Bible, and how we view ourselves. 
So he comes in, he's preaching this message. He says, I'm preaching, his first sermon was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is the king of the Jews. He's bringing something new in. So the Old Testament has been happening for, say, 1,500, 2,000 years of of stories and, and tales. And then Jesus shows up and says, now it's something new. Unlike them, I'm the king. And so the question arises, well, if he's the new king with a new kingdom, then I guess everything before doesn't matter anymore. We can kind of toss out the Old Testament because the new king is here. That question still arises. We follow Jesus. We don't follow the Old Testament. And so that's what he's addressing right at the beginning of his ministry. And he says, bluntly, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Destroy, in this sense, is usually used of buildings to dismantle and remove. Get rid of, toss out, dismiss, unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. He said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. And he says it again, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You see how he says, I didn't come to remove it, I came to add to it. I'm in line with the Old Testament, but I've got more than the Old Testament ever had. He is the king, but notice he says, I came to do something. He did not just show up to live and exist. The king came to do something, which was introduce the kingdom. But he's saying right up front that the kingdom is consistent with the Old Testament. It's not the same, but it's consistent with it. So the Old Testament talked about a kingdom. If you ever read through the Old Testament, there's, lots of, there's books called Kings, First and Second Kings. Lots of genealogies of kings with funny names and terrible lives. We know King David, Solomon, King Solomon. You ever heard the term Jezebel? She was the wife of King Ahab. It's more like King Jezebel and her partner Ahab. The Old Testament was about kingship. It was about God taking people out from one king, Pharaoh, into a new kingdom, Israel, giving them David as the great king, giving them Solomon as the wise king, giving them Hezekiah as sort of the repentant king. And this idea of that if you follow and obey God, you will get this land flowing with milk and honey where you'll have long life, and safety, a perfect kingdom. That's the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying, I'm here to bring not the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that better? Whenever you talk about heaven, you're always talking about something better than earth. Everyone understands heaven is better. Right? This, this cake is heavenly. Right? This, is, this place is, you know, wherever you're from is heaven on earth. It's always just a way of saying this is the perfect thing. So he says the kingdom of heaven. So he's bringing in this new kingdom, which is different than the old kingdom. And if you just compare the term kingdom and you look at the old kingdom, you can see the differences. The kingdom in the Old Testament was a place. To be part of the kingdom in the Old Testament, you had to live in Israel. Right? You didn't live in Assyria. You didn't live in Egypt. You lived in the kingdom of Israel. You had to go to the temple in Jerusalem. You had a king whose name was David or Ahab or Hezekiah or all, Joab, all these other people. To be a part of that kingdom, you had to obey the law 
You had to keep the conditions, and you had to live there, and you had to follow the king, and you had to go to the temple. And as we'll see later more, the new kingdom is not like that. It's the kingdom of heaven. And where is heaven located? That's the point. It's not a location. The very end of the book of Matthew says what? Go into all nations. Make disciple of all the nations. Who is Jesus king of? Everybody. It's not a geographic location anymore. It's a cosmic kingdom. It's a universal kingdom. So you see how the kingdom has changed. Who is the king of this kingdom? It's not a lineage. It's one person who sits on the throne forever. So Jesus is the king. The conditions are different. You don't have to go to the temple anymore. So Jesus is saying, I'm bringing in this new kingdom, which is so different from the old kingdom, but it's in continuity with the old kingdom. The Old Testament, the old kingdom was preparing for me. And now I've come to fulfill what was being prepared. Not tossing it out. How could I toss it out? It's prepared for me. He came to fulfill, not to dismiss. Augustine, the African church father, wrote 1,500 years ago. In this last sentence, again, there's a double sense to fulfill the law, either by adding something which it had not or by doing what it commands. Jesus is saying the Old Testament is God's word, but it wasn't enough. I came to fill it up. I came to add something to it it didn't have. What did the Old Kingdom, the Old Testament not have? It didn't have Jesus as king. It had David as king. The Old Testament was God's word and God's plan and God's kingdom, but it didn't have everything it needed. So Jesus came to fill it up, to fulfill it, and to fulfill it by doing what it commands. When you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of stuff you're supposed to do. And no one could ever fulfill that. So Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law and prophets. I came to keep them. I came to actually do what, I'll be the first person to actually do what they said. I'm not going to dismiss them. I'm going to obey them. So Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. And he kept the law. Theophylact. If you're looking for a child's name, Theophylact is available. (laughs) He lived about a thousand years ago uh, in what we would call Greece nowadays. And he says the same thing. How did he fulfill it? First, he did everything which the prophets had foretold concerning him. Which is why the evangelist often says, the book of Matthew often says, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Remember we talked about that? Why was he born in Nazareth? So that it might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarite. You look back at the first few chapters, this same word fulfill is used over and over again to say he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so it was fulfilled. He was called out of Egypt so that it would be fulfilled. I've called my son out of Egypt. So it's a prophecy aspect. The Old Testament said some things are going to happen, and Jesus says, and here I am to make them happen. Theophilac continues, He also fulfilled every commandment of the law, for he did no sin, neither was there any guile found in his mouth. And he fulfilled and completed the law in yet another way. And this is maybe, in some sense, the most important way for us. Whatever the law had sketched in outline, Christ fully painted in. The law said, do not murder, but Christ said, neither be angry without cause. So too, the painter does not destroy the sketch, but rather completes it. I know personally for me, it's a very powerful image. You have the framework. 
you have what God says to do, but it's just sketch, it's just outlines. And then Christ comes and paints it in. You ever seen those connect the dots? Did you get rid of the dots when you connected them? But once you connect them, you don't look at the dots anymore. You look at the connection. Paint by numbers. The numbers are important so that you can see where the paint goes. And so Christ comes not to get rid of the law, but to paint it in, to give it color. So that now when you look at the law, you see beauty. You see happiness. You see joy. Which by human nature, you don't see joy and beauty in law. So Christ comes to fulfill it, to fill it in with color, with beauty, with paint. So in other words, Jesus was an artist by both his life and his actions. The word of God is God's divine, inspired revelation of himself to people. How could Jesus dismiss that? If he is God then to dismiss the Old Testament would be to dismiss his own word. The Old Testament shows us who Jesus is, what he will do, so that when he does it, we can say, oh, that's what he was talking about. If you toss out the Old Testament, then the Passover, when Jesus dies on the cross, you just have to sort of start fresh instead of seeing thousands of years of preparation. To throw out the Old Testament is to say, Jesus just showed up out of nowhere and just made up some stuff to do. He says, I didn't come to do that. I want you to read the entire Old Testament before you listen to me. And so when you listen to me, you can say, oh, wow, this is what we've been looking for. He's what the Old Testament was talking about. The Old Testament was a schoolmaster to prepare for Jesus. Without the Old Testament, you're not prepared for Jesus. Without the law, you don't know the lawmaker. And you certainly don't know the Savior from the law. So he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. But then he turns to his disciples. She says, I'm the king of the kingdom. Who wants to be in the kingdom? It's the kingdom of heaven, by the way. Well, everyone's like, yeah. I don't have to move anywhere. I don't have to go live in another country. I can just join right now. Well, I want to be a part of that. So then he says, well, here's what it means to be a member of the kingdom. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For whoever do, but whoever does and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we know what Christ came to do, fulfill the Old Testament, but what are we called to do? We're not called to fulfill the Old Testament. So what are we called to do? And he tells us exactly. He already talked about in the Beatitudes in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does it mean to be a member of the kingdom? To hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you're hungry and thirsty, what do you do? You go look where you think food and water are. You, when your kid wakes up in the middle of the night, what do they say? Well, when your kid's supposed to go to bed, Suddenly, they become dehydrated. Do they go to their brother, to their sister for water? No. Dad, I'm, I'm so thirsty. Why? Because they know that the only way they're going to get water is if you give it to them. Unless they're old enough to sneak around you, but we're talking about little kids. 
So they go where they can find water. When you wake up in the middle of the night and you're hungry, where do you go? You don't go into your closet. You go, you go to the kitchen, to the refrigerator. You know exactly where to go to find the food. So for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus says, first you have the desire. Now I'm going to tell you where to find it. You want righteousness? Here's where you find it. Whoever therefore breaks the least of these commandments. Where is righteousness found? Where did God speak? Where did the God of righteousness? Remember the verse we read at the beginning of the service? He's the God of righteousness and justice. So when he speaks, he speaks righteousness and justice. So you, when you want to know when you're hungry and thirsting after righteousness, you go to where God speaks. And where did he speak? In the Old Testament. So to dismiss the Old Testament is to turn from righteousness. It's to turn from God. He says, well, God, you spoke back then, but I don't really have time for that part of what you said. Let's turn to something that I like more, or it's easier. Sometimes it's just easier to read the New Testament. You're like, it's just easier. But when you hunger and thirst, you'll search. You'll work. And so he says, go to the Old Testament to find righteousness. And do what with it? Obey it. When you find the right thing to do, a child of the kingdom, a member of God's kingdom, will do what is right. But notice it's also communal. And teaches men. To be a member of the kingdom is not just to do right. It's to help others do right. Is righteousness good? Then why wouldn't you help people you care about to be righteous? Now, we may not use the word righteous very much. We may use other words, truth, goodness, justice, do the right thing, whatever, whatever you express to mean God's will revealed. Are you helping someone else do it? To be great in the kingdom means do it and teaches it. You can't be great in the kingdom if you do it but don't teach it. Have you ever seen a movie or heard a song that you just loved? Did you turn it off when other people came in the room? Like, oh, I love this song so much. Oh, someone's here. Let's turn that off. <laughs> Not talking about the old ways anymore. <laughs> what do you do? You say to the person, hey, listen to this song. I love this song. And if they're like, oh, I don't like this song, you don't be like, oh, yeah, I don't like it either. And you're like, oh, what is wrong with you? This song is great. I love this song. Listen to the words. Listen to the music. Listen to the melody. So if you love righteousness, you love the Bible, you'll search it, you'll listen to it, you'll obey it, and then you'll turn to people and say, look at this, this is great. Amen. So when you evaluate your own life, are you teaching and if the answer is no, which for many of us, often it's no, it's not because we're doing the right thing, it's because we've left the right thing. We've been distracted. What it, when you do turn the music off or you give up, it's because you care more about that person's opinion than you care about the song. I love this song. That song is junk. Oh, man, maybe you're right. What has happened? You said you're more important than the song. So when you don't teach the Bible, you're saying, I care more about whatever is keeping you from it than the Bible, than righteousness. And so it's recentering, our, recentering ourselves on God and on his word. We pursue righteousness and we help others pursue it too. In other words, we follow Christ, who is our righteousness, and we help others follow him too. Because we love our neighbors. And if you love someone, you will help them do what is right. 
But look what he says about the Bible. If we're supposed to, if our very status within the kingdom is built on God's word, what is God's word? And he says here in verse 18, for surely I say to you, that phrase is important. Have you heard people say amen? That word assuredly, if you read it from the original languages, would sound like amen. Amen is not an English word. It's a Hebrew word. It's a Greek word that we just sort of say. And it, you say it when you agree with something, or you say, yep, that's true. So sometimes you'll hear people in the service say, amen. That's an ancient tradition going back several thousand years or more to say, what he just said is true, and I agree with it. And that's how it's used in the Old Testament, and that's how it's used for most of the Bible. And that's what the prophets would say when they would say, thus says the Lord. The prophet would come and say, thus says the Lord. And everyone would say, amen. But look what Jesus says. For assuredly, I say to you. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He said, I say to you. He's the first prophet to ever show up and speak for himself. Every other prophet said, God says to do this. I say that to you. God says to do this. Jesus says, I say to do this. Now, who has the nerve to say, you don't need to listen to God's word, you need to listen to me? Unless that person is God's word. That person is God. So he says, I say to you, assuredly, verily, amen, pay attention because God is speaking right now. Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, we don't use the word jot or tittle. Uh, we would understand those to be, those are letters. Those are ancient letters from the Hebrew and Greek languages. Uh, they're the smallest letters. They would be like the I. You ever seen an I? That would be like a jot. And a tittle is if you crossed your T. Really like the smallest parts of a letter. Yeah, dot the I and cross the T. That's what Jesus is saying if we were using English. He says, not one letter or one part of a letter will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. So which is going to disappear first, this earth or God's word? Jesus is saying to us, God's word will last longer than this world. Not just God's word generally, the very letters of God's word. Now, when we go to study the Bible, that's important. Jesus is saying about the Old Testament, every single letter is perfect and eternal. Now, the only way that can be true, the only way that can be true, a, such a broad statement, is if that letter was given by God himself. Now, just to clarify, he did not say one English letter or one French letter. He said one jot or tittle. Those are ancient languages. In other words, when God gave the Bible, he gave it in Hebrew and Greek which we still have to this day, partly because of this promise. So when there's disagreements about what the Bible says, we go to what God gave, and that is the Greek and the Hebrew. And we don't have to worry because God has promised that that Greek and Hebrew language, whether you can read it or not, it's still here. Every single letter. Can you trust the Bible? Can you trust Jesus? The answer to both is yes. See, when Jesus wrote this, the entire Old Testament, as we have it, was available to him. Exactly as we have it. So when he said, it's all there, he meant exactly what we have. No new discoveries were made after him. That's important because sometimes there's a push against this idea of what we call inerrancy. 
Inerrancy means there's no errors in the Bible. And the common sort of uh, popular view among churches is that that was invented about 150 years ago in Princeton. You'll hear this. If you go outside of sort of our conservative circles, you'll hear churches and pastors and Christians and non-Christians say that idea of no errors was invented by some guys who worked at Princeton in about 1850, 1880. And if that's true, I don't really have time for it. And neither should you. I quoted some authors here from 1,000 years ago, from 1,500 years ago. This book was written 2,000 years ago. So what Jesus is saying is they didn't invent inerrancy at Princeton. I invented it right here. What is more inerrant than saying the very letters will not change? Can you trust the Bible? Yes, down to the very letters, because Jesus said so. Not because I said so, not because anybody else, because Jesus himself said, here's the Bible, every letter is perfect, therefore it will last till all is fulfilled. And if you read the Old Testament, there's stuff that hasn't happened yet. And until it happens, you can trust it. It talks about Jesus coming back, setting up his kingdom through all the universe, creating a new world. Until that happens, you can trust every single letter. And when it happens, you can just talk to God himself. In other words, there's no competition between Jesus and the Bible. Amen. There's no competition between Jesus and the Old Testament. Yeah. To follow Jesus is to look to the Old Testament. It's to hold them both as the Word of God. There's no competition. Now, that doesn't mean the application hasn't changed. How many of you like to eat seafood? Crabs? We're in Maryland, right? Blue crabs. You know the Old Testament says not to? And this says you're supposed to keep every commandment. But notice who's saying it. Jesus. So we look to the Old Testament through Jesus. Jesus is Lord of us and Lord of the Old Testament. He tells us how to read the Old Testament. We don't toss it out, but we do interpret it differently. R.T. France says, the law is unalterable. But that does not justify its application beyond the purpose for which it was intended. To speak of a change in application of the law is not to regard it now as discarded. You know why they couldn't eat crabs? It was to show the world that there is a difference between God's people and the world. That is still true. That truth has not changed. Go to the Old Testament, read it, believe it, follow it. Except Jesus says, that's not how you do it anymore. And the only person that can change the application is Jesus himself. And he specifically says, now we show the holiness of God through our church, through our membership, through our lifestyle. He doesn't toss out the Old Testament, he changes the application of it. And you hear this a lot. Well, do you stone people? Guess you don't believe the Bible because the Bible says to stone people. No, the the Bible says to obey God, follow him, and be holy. And if you lived at a certain time, this is what you do. But Jesus says, now you live in a different time. Here's how you understand that. The point being, you follow Jesus and you listen to how he tells you to follow the Old Testament. That's what the entire New Testament's about. When you read the New Testament, he's telling you how to read the Old Testament. The number of quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament would shock you. No matter how long you've been in church, none of us actually realize how many quotations are in the New Testament. It's over and over and over again. You read the Old Testament through Christ. You don't just toss out the Old Testament. Why? Because it shows the righteousness of God. We seek righteousness. 
Look what he follows up with. Because this sounds great. It's like, okay, good. Now we have a plan forward. Now we know what to do. How do we be great? Read the Old Testament, follow Christ, follow righteousness, apply it correctly, and we'll be good. But then he follows up to sort of pop that bubble and says, For I say to you, notice again he says, I say to you. Speaking as God, he doesn't say thus says the Lord, he says I say to you, which is the same thing. That unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. See how he changed the the, the term? It was great in the kingdom. Now he's saying, how do you even get in? Not how you can be great, or least, how you can even get in. Now, we don't use the word scribes and Pharisees anymore except as negative terms. When you say someone's a Pharisee, it's always a negative thing. That's because we listen to Jesus. But at this time, the Pharisees were the, well, the scribes were the recognized official interpreters of the law. They were your preachers. They were your pastors at this time. They were who you went to to understand the Old Testament. They believed that every word was inspired. They said, yeah, it's all inspired. It's all God's word. Now keep it. This is what it means. The Pharisees went a step further and said, not everybody's obeying the law. Not everybody's actually following the scripture. So we're going to show you how to do it. They were reformers. They were this voluntary group of, of Bible believers who said every word is right and every word should be kept, and we're going to do it. And we're going to put some extra rules in there, too, just to make sure it happens. Who's the most Christian person you know? Who's the most Bible-believing, Bible-following person you know? Put their name in the place here of Pharisee. Just, just replace it. The best person you know. The most godly person. That's what they would have heard when Jesus said Pharisees. That's what Jesus is saying to us. So put that person's name right there and say, unless you're better than that person, you won't even get in the kingdom. Now you say, oh man, that was my goal. Like, if I can just be as good as, maybe you have to go back in history. If I can be as good as Spurgeon or John the Baptist or Paul, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of Paul himself, of John the Baptist himself, of St. Peter himself, you won't even get in. I'm not going to be as good as the apostles. I can't be better than Peter who walked with Jesus. John, who wrote books of the Bible, who really seems to do the right thing most of the time, following Jesus, believing Jesus. I can't be better than him, better than the best Christian that ever lived, just to get in. Yes. Because the kingdom of heaven is good, which means it has no sin. And everyone that's in the kingdom is good, which means they don't have sin. Sin corrupts. Righteousness doesn't. So the kingdom of heaven has a standard, which is perfect righteousness. Perfect. Not a trace of sin. Because sin is like yeast. It just spreads. It's got a ripple effect. So you bring one sin in, now you've got two sins. So unless you are perfect, that's what Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness is perfect, you will by no means even get in the kingdom. He's setting up an impossible situation. He's saying, pursue righteousness, follow me, listen to me, obey me, but you can't do it. You want to be in my kingdom? You're welcome, but you have to be perfect. 
What is he doing? He's doing the same thing the Old Testament was doing. Here's what you should do, but you're not doing it. So you need another answer. God doesn't change the standards. He doesn't say, well, okay, we'll let some sin in. He just changes the solution. The old kingdom, you got in by moving there, by keeping the law, by being circumcised, by keeping the Passover, or you got kicked out. The new kingdom could be anywhere because God is anywhere, but it still requires obedience, perfect obedience. He's saying, And I know myself better than I know you, and I certainly don't act like God, so I can't get in the kingdom? By no means enter the kingdom of heaven? And this is where we have to go to the rest of the Bible, but look back at the verse. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of prophets, lower the standard. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The law could never get you in the kingdom. It only showed you why you couldn't be in. So Jesus says, I've come to give something the law couldn't give. Entrance into the kingdom. Christ comes to give what the law couldn't, which is the righteousness required by the law. That perfect righteousness. You see, there's a new kingdom, but it's made accessible by a new covenant. Not the Passover, not circumcision, not going to the temple to sacrifice lambs. A new covenant with only one condition, faith. And what the covenant does is it takes your worthless faith, and it combines it with Christ's perfect righteousness, and in the end, you get Christ's righteousness. So the new covenant provides a way into the kingdom by Christ. Christ earns the righteousness. You see, he came to fulfill the law. Why? How? By doing what it said. By being more righteous than the Pharisees. By keeping every single letter of the law perfectly. There was no guile found in his mouth. Perfectly righteous, Perfectly obedient, the perfect faithful son of God. Through his whole life, he lives perfectly. And then he obeys God in one more step by dying for us, which the Old Testament has been talking about the whole time. A lamb, a perfect spotless lamb must die for the unperfect people. And Jesus says, that's me. I've come here to be perfect and die for the unperfect. He earns the perfect righteousness that gets us into heaven. He lives a perfect life. He dies a perfect death to clear us of the debt, but he doesn't stop there. Then he has his blank slate. He puts his righteousness on it. He clears all our bad stuff and gives us all his good stuff. Why? For by grace are you saved through faith. Why? Because he's gracious. He is merciful. He is both just and righteous and loving. He requires perfection, but he's also merciful. Not by taking away perfection, but by giving it. He requires what we can't give, so he gives it to us. It's a free gift. All the righteousness that is required to enter the kingdom is given to us freely. You can't earn any of it. You should hunger and thirst for it, but you can't earn it. Romans 5 goes into detail. You see, Adam sinned, and we all followed his footsteps. And we earned punishment. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, 
much more by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. That's what Jesus says. You won't even get in the kingdom. But the free gift, which came from many offenses, in other words, all the sin that was put on Christ, resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. You see that? Gift of righteousness. You don't have righteousness. We don't have perfect righteousness. So God says, you don't have it and you never will. So here it is. Christ's righteousness given to us who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ, the kingdom. Therefore, as though one, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinner, sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. You hear the passive language on our part? We are given righteousness. We are made righteousness. It's what we call imputed righteousness. Christ earned his righteousness. He did right. It's just imputed to us. Martin Luther said 500 years ago, it's an alien righteousness. It's not your own. It's alien to you. It's outside of you, but it's put onto your account. So Christ says, you can't be in my kingdom unless you're perfect. And so here's the perfection. How? He says, oh, I'll have to die for that. See, they don't know this yet because they weren't paying attention to the Old Testament. But every, day, every year in the Old Testament, a lamb was killed for them. Year after year after year, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, perfect lambs were killed for the people. And now Jesus says, you can't get in unless you're perfect. But do you remember the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world? That's me. So let Christ lives perfectly then he gives us that perfection. Doesn't that free you? What does it take for you to get into heaven? Perfect righteousness. Where do you get that from? All from Jesus. He just says, just trust him. How do you get in the kingdom? Christ gets you in the kingdom. For by grace are you saved through faith. You believe it, he does it. You trust him, he gives you righteousness. He doesn't expect you or lean on you for anything. Now, once you're in the kingdom, yeah, then you pursue righteousness. But you're already in. And what Christ's imputed righteousness does, it frees us to pursue righteousness. It frees us from the guilt of failing. It frees us from saying, I'm not good enough. I don't even want to try anymore. You are good enough through Christ. So he gives us his gift, frees us to pursue righteousness of the Old Testament, which was a law of death. Now it's a guide to life through Christ. There's no fear in the kingdom. There's no fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Everything you're afraid of is because you're not trusting Christ enough. You're not seeing what Christ has done for you. You're not seeing what he faced for you. All the things you're afraid of, Christ already faced them in one, and he just gifted that to you. No fear, only love because of Christ's imputed righteousness. 
gives us this freedom to seek to behave like Him. You know, there's another gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, our assurance lies in the fact that God will never change. But our hope lies in the fact that we will change. Christ died once for all, imputed His righteousness to those who believe, and now we can change. Once we're set right with God, now we can start living right for God. This is the kingdom of heaven. So we look to the Bible with joy. We look to the Old Testament with hope because of Christ. Now, you may not be a follower of Christ right now. You may just be trying to follow the law. You'll never do it. Turn from the law and turn to Christ. Turn from your church membership and turn to Christ. Turn from your good works and turn to Christ. Turn from your righteous attempts at life and turn to Christ. And then you'll have righteousness through Christ. Let's pray.